It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains disturbing details related to an unsolved murder. As always, for a full list of our sources for this episode, check out our show notes. Sunday, December 7th, 1975 was warm in Fort Lauderdale. The temperatures hovered in the mid-70s. The Midkiff brothers, Richard, John, and Anthony, decided to spend the morning hunting deer, cruising through grassy Florida fields in their swamp buggy. The spot they picked to hunt has since been developed and is full of hotels and condos. But in the 70s, it was in the Everglades and was much more isolated. True, there was a Florida power and light repair station several hundred yards away, but it was mainly used to keep trucks. The nearest residents lived more than a mile away at an apartment complex back then, 
A canal ran through the field. Some people used it to dump their garbage. Others, like the Midkiffs, just liked it as background scenery when they rode their buggy through the brush and shrubs. It was a fun, relaxing morning, until John smelled something. He couldn't tell what it was. None of the brothers could. But it reminded them of death. They thought they knew what it might be. It was illegal to shoot female deer, so when hunters killed a doe, they would leave the body to decay in the mossy bushes and shrubs. So the brothers assumed the foul stench was nothing more than a dead deer. But they weren't completely sure and decided to investigate, maneuvering their vehicle closer to the smell. About 150 yards from the road, in an area completely covered with trees, they discovered what appeared to be four piles of rags. But they weren't rags. The Midkiff brothers had discovered the bodies of Joseph McCartney, Gail Reichman, Marianne Haston, and Nita Harvard. The four had not been seen since the previous Tuesday, when they vanished from Boccaccio's, a popular nightclub. The Midkiffs rushed to a nearby power substation, the closest place they could think of with a phone, and notified the police. And the cops sped over. They were there practically before I got off the phone, remembered Richard Midkiff in an interview with the Fort Lauderdale News. The Boccaccio murders were a huge case. The deaths were potentially linked to organized crime or a serial killer. So why, over 40 years later, so why, over 40 years later, are the families of the dead still waiting for answers as to what happened to their loved ones? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is The Boccaccio's Massacre, part one.
Florida in the 1970s was very different from how it is today. Here is Chuck Hemp, then a detective sergeant with the Oakland Park, Florida Police. He was the lead investigator on this case. We were right in the middle of uh, the cocaine cowboy era, and uh, you couldn't find a dollar bill in the whole damn county that didn't have cocaine in it. In this environment, when a new nightclub called Boccaccio's opened, it attracted some attention. It was run by a guy by the name of Morty Brown, and uh, there was some suspicion, some innuendo and suspicion that he was kind of a low uh, organized crime figure and so forth and so on. I, I think that's all a bunch of crap. Others were not so quick to dismiss the possibility of an organized crime connection to what happened at Boccaccio's. Here's John Circio, a Broward Sheriff's Office detective. He is currently assigned to this case. Uh, the owner of that place was a person, uh, or the establishment was a place where alleged people with organized crime connections would frequent. It was like, you know, one of those kind of hangouts. So, I mean, that could be where that's coming from. Was that a big thing in Broward County at the time, like lots of organized crime? Well, I think you, you, I don't want to. I don't want to sound uh, crazy, but if you ever go to watch the movie The Godfather, <laughs> where, where 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 does everybody end up? They ended up down in Miami Beach. They ended up right. in Fort Lauderdale. We had we had a uh, a lot of organized crime guys like to get suntans just like everybody else. So yeah, they come down to South Florida. Either way, the people running Boccaccio's developed a regular procedure. The nightclub closed at four o'clock. And so the routine was in the morning, uh, people would come in. There was a there was a daytime bookkeeper. She was thirty five years old, mother uh, of a couple of kids, family, and uh, there was a twenty one year old uh, uh, daytime manager who was there initially to accept deliveries when they came in in the morning and so forth and so on. And then there were two uh, black uh, cleaning ladies that cleaned the uh, uh, bar and the restaurant and uh, to get it ready for opening again when they open around dinner time. And so, on Tuesday, December 2nd, 1975, manager Joseph McCartney got to the club around 8.30 a.m. Maids Nita Harvard and Marion Haston were dropped off of the business around 8.45 a.m. by Haston's husband, Barney and bookkeeper Gail P. Reichman is believed to have arrived for work around 9 a.m. At about that same time, a man out walking his dog reported seeing McCartney enter a yellowish-brownish car being driven by a man in his 30s. The witness said that McCartney did not seem to be upset or agitated. That was the last time any of the four were seen alive. How ours was found was... uh a delivery driver uh, bringing uh, beer or liquor or something into the establishment. I think he got there around uh, nine in the morning, which was his usual routine. And uh, uh, nothing was locked. He walked into the office. Uh, Everything was clean, immaculate. Um, Her purse was laying on the desk. The, The safe was closed. 
and uh, and totally locked. There just there was just no people there, but there was no indication of any struggle or any indication that there was a problem at all. And so he didn't associate that with any type of a concern or a crime, and he just left and went to another delivery, and then came back. I want to say. Uh, quarter to 11, 11 o'clock, something like that. So maybe close to two hours later. And when he found the situation in the same place, uh, in the same condition, he then became concerned and uh, called the police. So the uh, first officer arrived over there and took a look at it, and, and he became concerned right away. So he backed out and called, uh, called detectives right away. And we went over there, and they did a pretty thorough job on photographs and on a crime scene. But it was it was just absolutely um, pristine in terms of uh, being clean. Well, not quite pristine. The police did manage to find and lift a fingerprint. Was the print located in an area where you feel confident it was from one of the perpetrators, or could it have been like a customer or some such? Oh, it could have, well, it was on the office door. Um, okay. You know, they, they would have, it was it was on the outside of the office door, so the perpetrators would have had to go in there, employees would have had to go in there, uh, delivery people, salespeople, representatives, everything else would have had to go in there, the owner would have had to go in there, uh, any girlfriends that he entertained would have went in there, uh, so we made an effort to try and, and locate as many people, including the arresting, or including the uh, uniformed officers, detectives, and everybody else. But uh, um, I'm not aware that it was ever identified. There were no signs of a struggle. McCartney and Reichman's cars were still in the parking lot, and their belongings, including Reichman's purse, were found at the nightclub. Police couldn't figure out why anyone would kidnap the four or even the mechanics of how someone would go about doing it on a sunny Florida morning. Number one, how do you take four people out of a restaurant? Uh, if you know, if, How do you take them in the first place? How mm-hmm. many people are involved? You're you going to cram four people in your car? How are you going to restrain them? <clears throat> how are you going to keep them from fighting and screaming and carrying on? Baffled investigators began to focus on their restaurant's safe. It was closed when police arrived but they believed that Reichman had opened it and closed it before she vanished. Club owner Morton Brown told detectives that, as of the night before, the safe contained about $7,500 in cash and negotiables. But no one knew what it may or may not have contained now. McCartney and Reichman were the only ones who knew the combination to the safe. Despite owning the club, Brown said he did not have that information. When I talked to him about this, he says, look, he says, I, I pay a bookkeeper to take care of that. He says, I don't have anything to do with uh, dropping the money in the safe at night. He says, by the time we close at 4 a.m. in the morning, he says, I'm usually with a girl or have a couple drinks. And the people that I pay to run the restaurant take care of that. And he says, and the, uh, I pay a, a, a bookkeeper to come in every morning, open the safe, do the uh, nighttime receipts and make the trip to the bank. Throughout the course of the investigation, wild stories swirled about concerning what may or may not have been in that safe. I mean, there was rumors that there was cocaine in the safe, a bookie layoff money in the safe. There was no indication that any of that could be verified. And it seemed to me at the time to be the typical 
Broward County bullshit that went around in terms of uh, uh, speculation. Uh, so I no, there was no indication there was cocaine in his safe. It just didn't make any sense. In Hemp's view, the biggest problem with this theory was that since McCartney and Reichman were the only ones with access to the safe, then they would have had to been involved with any illicit activity involving its contents. And they did not seem to be the sort of people to be mixed up with such things. It just doesn't make any sense that any of those people would be involved in a cocaine operation. The, the girl that was the bookkeeper that handled the funds, uh, you know, we looked at her books and everything else. Everything was, was perfect. She was uh, 35 years old, the mother of two children, never any criminal record. And it would have been her responsibility to open the safe every so. I mean, you know, there's just no, no way that that happened. In any case, even if the rumors about what may have been in the safe were untrue, they still could have played a role in what happened to the Boccaccio Four. I remember uh, talking to people at the time that said it would have been so easy uh, for that to have happened by uh, two people talking in a bar uh, over drinks. And all. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what, I, I could get you killed uh, by just saying to uh, somebody sitting in the bar that I knew you and you had a safe inside your house and you kept $5,000 in the safe and, uh, and at a bar. And somebody's going to break into your house and kill you or break into that safe. And it was, it was pretty much true. When police managed to finally get the safe open, they found not just money missing, but something else something that pointed them towards a very specific suspect. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. The only thing known to be missing from the safe, other than the receipts from the night before, were the employment records related to one man, George Dino Durkin. This rather bizarre fact was alone enough to make Durkin a person of interest. But when police took a closer look at him, they found even more cause to suspect him. Durkin had worked as a dishwasher at the club. He did time in jail for armed robbery, and one of the people who worked with him in the kitchen described Durkin as crazy. On November 19th, just a couple of weeks before the four employees vanished, Durkin got drunk on cooking wine while on the job. When a customer tried to cut through the kitchen to get to the bathroom, the inebriated Durkin insulted him. One thing led to another, and Durkin and the customer ended up brawling in the street outside Boccaccio's. Manager McCartney, soon to be one of the four missing employees, fired Durkin on the spot. This angered the dishwasher, and he made threats to some of his soon-to-be former co-workers. No one seemed to have a good idea of where he went or what he did after that. That changed on December 13th. 1975, when police managed to track down and arrest Durkin in Toronto. They quickly confirmed that he had left the Fort Lauderdale area several days before the crime, and had actually entered Canada the day before the crew went missing. So the man who had been their number one suspect had been cleared of any direct involvement in the crime. By this time, of course, the Midkiff brothers had discovered the bodies of the victims, and what had been a kidnapping case now became a quadruple homicide. The field where the corpses were discovered was about 10 miles west of the club. 
The bodies of the two cleaning women lay next to one another, while McCartney and Reichman lay a few feet away. All four died as a result of gunshots to the top of the head, as if the victims had been lying down when killed. The women had been shot once. McCartney had been shot twice. Did you think that it was a thirty-eight caliber weapon? Oh, definitely. Did you have a sense of what kind of gun? Uh, I, I, it, it's a five right twist on the shell. And uh, as I believe that could have been a Smith & Wesson. There was no sign of a struggle at the scene. No indication anyone had tried to run off or escape or fight. And the killer or killers tried not to leave anything behind. Okay, our, our people were completely stripped of, uh, of, uh, of wristwatches and all that sort of thing. Uh, didn't have any personal items left on their body. That wasn't the only challenge the detectives faced. And the, one of the other problems that was, uh, even though it was December, uh, it gets pretty hot in Florida in December, mm. uh, even in South Florida. And so uh, the bodies had been out there uh, from Tuesday morning. Uh, to uh, to uh, the following Sunday, and so they were badly, badly decomped and, uh, and and bloated. So I mean, when we did the autopsies, uh, we were doing it in the decomposition room, and there there were you know maggots everywhere, and the bodies uh, were were pretty badly uh, badly decomped. Despite the condition of the bodies they managed to yield at least one tantalizing clue. The uh, white female. And if you look very carefully to me, and, and this is me, and the mm-hmm. medical examiner I think agrees with me, that it looks like uh, the double ring of a handcuff going around and, and put on her, her, her wrist fairly tight. Mm-hmm. That suggests that when the victims were taken out of the restaurant, they may have been restrained in handcuffs. And that raised a host of questions. In terms of the um, the handcuff marks on the victims, was was that unusual to use like handcuffs as opposed to something like you know like duct tape or anything in in robberies at that time? Was that does that did that stick out to you at the time? Well, there were a couple things that sort of stuck out at the time. That was one of them. So one of the things we wonder is, did we have a police officer involved? Uh, did we have a retired police officer or a police officer that had been fired? Do we have a private investigator? Do we have? So, you know, you, you don't see people running around with handcuffs most of the time. This all put the investigators back to square one. They even started revisiting leads they had already worked, like Durkin, and stories about drugs in the safe. Police got a story from an informant that the killers were a group of three men who, soon after the killings, got picked up on an unrelated armed robbery charge. The three men definitely hung out at the club often in the weeks before the murders, supposedly to buy drugs. It was alleged that the three knew Durkin, and that the dishwasher acted as an inside man, who helped the three arrange to purchase drugs from McCartney. On the morning of the killings, the three supposedly went to the club to buy cocaine from McCartney. When they got inside, they saw there was a large amount of cocaine in the club safe, recognized they had an opportunity to make a quick and easy fortune, and so they took the drugs from McCartney at gunpoint. To make their escape, they forced the Boccaccio's crew into the car 
and drove them to the field where they shot them to death, one by one by one by one. Afterwards, they put the murder weapons into an orange vinyl bag and dumped them into the ocean. With nothing to stop them, they sold the cocaine and used the proceeds to travel and lounge about at places like Acapulco. When the money ran out, they returned to Florida. They even had one of the women who traveled with them get a job at Boccaccio's. They wanted to learn how much the people there knew about the murders. It was an intriguing story, but there was no hard evidence to support any of it. And Mary McCartney, the mother of victim Joseph McCartney, vehemently protested against the idea of a drug deal gone wrong. She said her son lived with her and was always broke, which is not what she would have expected from someone involved in the drug trade. And, of course, if McCartney was selling drugs from the Boccaccio's safe, then Reichman, who also had access to the safe, would have had to have known about it and, at the very least, have tacitly endorsed it. That did not make sense to anyone. But much about these murders did not make sense. Why take the time and the risk to transport the victims from the club out to the field? Why not simply kill them at the restaurant? Perhaps it was a robbery, and one of the robbers was recognized. But who would rob a club on a Tuesday morning? There would have been much more money in the safe after a weekend night. Maybe the killer simply sought revenge against one of the four for personal reasons. Or perhaps it was a contract killing, related in some way to organized crime. Or the perp could have just been a psycho, or under the influence. Anything and everything was on the table. It looked as if the crime might go unsolved forever, unless the killer struck again. Next week, a killer with a strikingly similar M.O. hits a new target. Hemp tells the story of the last best attempt to unravel the mysteries of the Boccaccio's murders. And Detective Curcio shares other possibilities of how the cold case went down. If you have information on the Boccaccio's case, please contact the Broward County Sheriff's Office at 954-493-TIPS or 954-493-8400. Seven, seven. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. 
If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.